want you to open your Bible with me to Psalm 27. It is the nature of the Word of God to minister to the people of God. I'm thankful for that. And I want you to know that this psalm is particularly suited to the condition that you are in right now. And it fits across the board regardless of where you feel like you are with God, this psalm is going to speak directly into your life. There are some here that are cold to the things of God. Perhaps, Lord willing, there are some here who are experiencing a a time of fervency with the Lord. There are some here who are questioning, perhaps even doubting their own salvation, not having a a good understanding that that salvation was secured for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some here this morning, most likely, that are outside of faith and very content to be so, not sensing that there is any real Necessity laid upon them to make sure that it is well with their soul. So this, I want to go through the entirety of this psalm. There's 14 verses. I'm going to break it into three sections. If you study this psalm and you use a study Bible or a commentary or something like that, if you see an outline of this psalm, you'll see it broken up into far more detail than the way that I'm going to present it this morning. But I want to just have three main headings and give you the groupings of verses that fit under those headings and then just walk through it together. The first three verses, one through three, David presents to us an all-encompassing confidence. And we're going to see how his confidence in the Lord exudes in these three areas that the Lord is his light, his salvation, and his strength. The second grouping of verses, verses 4 through 12, David shows us what his all-encompassing desire is in life. And being the man after God's own heart, we do well to follow in his steps. And then last, the last two verses of this psalm, we have what I'm going to term an all-encompassing courage. So it encapsulates every portion of our life. We are to be confident in the Lord. We are to have one desire in Him. And we are to proceed through life with courage that He has given. We are to be courageous. If you're not a courageous Christian in this day and time, you're going to find much of your life being hidden under a rock somewhere. You're going to have to crawl into a hole and stay there for a long time. But living courageously, trusting the Lord, speaking the truth of God into the face of a culture that doesn't want to hear it, that is very antagonistic towards it, and may even in time punish you severely because of it. One of the things that I 
love and have grown to benefit from through reading the Psalms through the years just like you is you find portions, whether it's David or whomever has written the psalm, you find verses there that really bolster your faith. These last two verses, and and we're going to spend some time in these the last, at the end of this sermon, but the last two verses of Psalm 27, I find myself coming to over and over and over again. And I'm venturing to say that most of you, If you've gone through any great difficulty in the last few years, I probably have texted you these verses at some time or another to remind you that this is where we are to live. Otherwise, we would faint. And that's the beginning of verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I remembered this or that. So before we get to that point, I want to go back and begin in verse 1 and speak about David's all-encompassing confidence. So let's read verses 1 through 3. Familiar verses, and I've reminisced this week and sort of jokingly with my family. At some point through the years, most of my children have memorized Psalm 27, and it's always been a great delight to hear them recite it and not picking on Silas too much, but... His recitation of this psalm, when he was probably four to five years old, has stuck in my mind. And I'm going to try to read it the way it's written, not the way you said it. So, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat of my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Let me show you the three things that David is supremely confident in, all stemming from his relationship to the Lord. And as I show you these three things, I want you to notice that he says of each of them, the Lord is my, and then he says, life, salvation, and strength. So these things are coming to us in relationship. These things are appropriated by faith, and that's the important part of this entire psalm. All of the truth contained in this psalm. The truth that this psalm is, is appropriated into the life of the believer by faith. These are things that you must believe. And these are the things that Christ is pleased to impart to you based upon your being united to him by faith. So the first, and we don't know exactly the situation David was in, and I'm thankful for that. I do love the Psalms that tell us at the beginning, this is what's going on in David's life. There are only a few of those, but then we can really see from where he's writing. But I'm thankful that most of these Psalms of David are just left open-ended. And we can see that they apply to our life in any situation. So David says, the Lord is my light. You can't read the scriptures without noticing the antithesis of darkness and light. 
You can't see how, how, help but notice how they stand in stark opposition to one another. Darkness is representative of sin. Darkness is representative of lostness. Darkness is representative of an eternity spent in separation and under the wrathful punishment of God. Darkness is representative of every man in his natural state. Light, very much to the contrary, represents life, knowledge, There is clarity, there is order, there is understanding that has been brought by the entrance of light. And notice that David gives credit to the Lord for being his light. Oftentimes we think that saints in the Old Testament were converted differently than saints in the New. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The light of the Lord had shone upon David, giving him faith in the coming Messiah, the coming of Christ. And he was trusting in that work that would would be performed by him through faith. And by that sense, the Lord had become the light of David. In the same way he has become the light of any of you who are here believing this morning. You realize the scriptures declare over you. And over me in our natural condition that we are in a darkened, dead spiritual state. The light has not dawned. The sun of righteousness has not appeared. And were we to die in that condition, were this life to end and the judgment to follow, we would forever be in that darkened state. But for many of us, just like with David... The Lord has become our light. We now see more clearly. We now see things for the way that they really are. And I want you to consider this in two aspects, really. The first, the greatest aspect of salvation, but then just in every your everyday life. How could you see things rightly and clearly? How could you make wise decisions? How could you proceed in life if the Lord was not shedding light upon your every step? We know from other places in the Psalms that the word of God is is a lamp to our feet. And very often in living the Christian life, the lamp is only bright enough to show you where to put your foot down in the next step. It doesn't light the whole pathway, does it? That's why we walk by faith, knowing that the Lord will supply light for the next step. But David says a second thing, and, and I want us to understand this rightly. He says, the Lord is my salvation, our minds immediately run to the salvation that we have received in Christ, but that's not really, I don't think, what David has in mind. The word probably better understood as a temporal deliverance. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is your deliverer. And I want to spend a little bit of time with this word because we as Christians need to understand it To the extent that the scriptures would have us understand it. We can't stop short. Certainly we can't take it further than we should. And life tells us. That Christians are not always delivered out of hard circumstances. Very often it is the purpose and plan of God to leave me or you. In a very difficult Situation. So how is it that David could be so confident and say that the Lord is my deliverance, that he is my salvation? 
This is helpful, and I, I hope that you will either write this down or commit this to memory very quickly. The Lord delivers from trouble in three ways. Sometimes he delivers us from trouble altogether, and we just never know it. We never come into contact with trouble. He has gone before us and redirected our path around it, and we just never come into the contact or experience of trouble to the degree that we feel like we need to be delivered out of it. And we can thank and praise the Lord for those times when he has delivered us from trouble. Sometimes, though, the Lord is pleased to deliver us out of trouble. We realize it. We are experiencing it. We are, feels like our, our feet are cemented in trouble. And sometimes it pleases the Lord to reach down and deliver you out of that. Whether it's a physical problem, whether it's financial difficulty, whether it's an issue with a relationship. Could be any number of things. The Lord gives it to you for a season and then he alleviates it quickly and easily. But then there is another way that the Lord delivers in the realm of trouble, and it is through trouble. We just passed the 66th anniversary yesterday, the 66th anniversary of the martyrdom of Jim Elliott and those who were with him. It's hard to believe that much time has passed. When you read history, it seems like it's so alive and real. So was the Lord Jim Elliott's deliverance? Was he his salvation? What about Stephen in the New Testament? As he gave a bold defense of the truth, as he preached Christ, was the Lord his deliverance? Was the Lord his salvation? Yes, but the Lord chose to to deliver him through the trouble. He didn't deliver him from it or even out of it. But his deliverance was ultimate and final as the Lord saw him through trouble. Most likely as Christians, if the Lord allows us to live any number of days in believing in him, we will experience trouble in the Lord's deliverance from it in all three ways. There will be times when we're astounded by the measure of calmness and serenity and peace in our lives. The Lord has delivered us from even knowing any trouble. Then there will be times when we have great testimony to give to those around us, when we can remember back and say, the Lord really delivered me out of this trouble. I was in such grave condition, and the Lord was pleased to pull me out. And then perhaps others speaking of us, as we are speaking of Jim Elliott now, will will realize the Lord delivered him through trouble, and his deliverance was final. It was the ultimate deliverance. It was the taking on to be in glory that he experienced, as will some of we. So when David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, don't suppose there that the Lord is always, every time, going to deliver you from a harsh temporal circumstance. There are people who would tell you that. 
And they're undercutting the feet of faith out from under you when they tell you that. Because what they have behind all of that is the expectation that the Christian life is always good all the time. And if you experience anything different, then you must be deficient in your understanding or your faith is not to the level that it will be. But far contrary to that, it's those who with maturing understanding realize that very often it pleases the Lord to deliver me through trouble and leaving me in it. According to his wisdom... According to the grace that he supplies, wasn't this true of Paul? We talked about this even on Wednesday evening. Paul prayed three times, Lord, help, remove, take this thing from me. And finally, the ultimate answer came to Paul. And I paraphrase, but the Lord making it known that he's going to leave the thorn in the flesh and dispense grace To him in the form of great strength in weakness. But David says another thing here in this first verse. The Lord is the strength of my life. Christian, aren't you thankful that you're not left to live life in your own strength? I would be embarrassed to stand up here and, and reveal to you my own weakness. Few know it, like my wife knows it, like my children know it. And I suppose that your testimony would be very much the same. But yet we find weak and frail men in the scriptures and in church history that do great exploits, right? They accomplish things that are incredible. And the only explanation for it is that the Lord is the strength of life. The Lord very often gives strength only for the day that you are in. That's where we most rightly expect the strength strength of the Lord today. But based upon these three things, I want you to notice the two questions that David asks. And this is where I get the The point of this first three verses, the all-encompassing confidence of David. He asks the question, based upon the Lord being his light and salvation, whom shall I fear? And though it's not explicitly stated, I think implicit here is, what shall I fear? Behind every what or circumstance, there is a whom that has brought it to your life. Whether it's a family member or even to go so far as one of the spiritual hosts of wickedness in in the heavenly places that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 6. But I want you to really see and put your eye on the words on on this verse. Whom shall I fear? And the second question. Of whom shall I be afraid? The words in Hebrew are different for fear and afraid. The first, the more general and oftentimes used in a positive sense of reverence and awe and respect. That's the word that is oftentimes used for our fearing God. The second one, though, brings it really close to home and it speaks more to the actual trembling of fear. The actual fear of life itself. Whom shall, of whom shall I be 
afraid? Do you see the all-encompassing confidence that the Lord brings into the heart and the life of a believer? Let me say it as clearly as I can. Christian, you are not called to live your life in fear of anything or of any person. Why? God is your light. He is your deliverance. He is your strength. And of course, we can make application of the great words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? But there's a very sobering truth that rises to the surface when you turn those words around, isn't there? If God be against us, who can be for us? Presents the same truth in a different light. And I say with all seriousness and all earnestness that if you are not found in Christ, God is opposed to you. And there is nothing or no one that can be for you. So we have no grounds for fear. There is no foundation upon which fear can be built in the Christian life. It must be torn down by these great truths that David is, David is giving us here in the 27th Psalm. He goes on to detail for us his real experience. And sometimes I fear we, we keep the things that David would write or whomever is writing in Scripture on a mere intellectual plane where we just mold them over and don't really think of the great peril that they were in. Notice how he describes this situation in verse 2. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh. Whatever the circumstance was, David was in grave Danger it would fit in many areas of his life, but rather than try to speculate, we can just come to the point of knowing that David was in grave danger. His enemies and foes had rallied against him, but notice what he says when they came against me, they stumbled and fell. To what can we attribute the stumbling and falling of a mighty and strong enemy? Only the tripping of God. And you see it all through scripture. Sometimes it pleases the Lord to raise up a wicked king, a wicked nation, a wicked people. To chastise and discipline his own people. But when the Lord is done with them, what does he do? He casts them off. They stumble and they fall. Every work of the adversary of all truth will in the end stumble and fall. There is no element of adversity that will ultimately and finally not reach this same end. Everything and every person who is opposed to the God of all creation will at some point or another stumble and fall. And let me again speak as clearly as I can to any here who are trusting in your own strength, in your own light, in your own ability to deliver yourself temporally or eternally. There will be a point in time, and it may not be known until your eyes close in death, there will be a point in time to where you stumble and have a great fall. But David says, even though an army may encamp against me. Notice 
the juxtaposition there. Notice what's being contrasted. An army. And I think that the text or the context here would would lend itself to a great army, a massive army, a great number of people encamping against me, one person, an individual. If you can, with a sanctified mind, go to this place to where you are in the desert and there is you and you only and you raise your eyes and you see a whole host of people who have come out against you. What is your reaction going to be? David says, my heart shall not fear. You see the all encompassing confidence that he has in God, though war may rise against me in this, I will be confident. And it harkens us back to that account in the scriptures in the Old Testament where the servant can't see what's on top of the hillside. And the prophet has to say, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And there he sees the mighty army of God ready to come to his defense and to his aid. The word for confidence here is trust. In this, I will trust in what? That the Lord is my light, salvation, deliverance and strength. Very often the Lord calls us to act upon the things we say we believe. It's one thing to say, to profess, the Lord is my light, deliverance, and strength. It's another thing altogether to actually be in possession of those things. Easy to say, much harder to live in light of them. So that's the all-encompassing confidence that David has in his relationship with the Lord. The Lord is my light, my salvation, my strength. Secondly, in verses 4 through 12, I want to point out David's all-encompassing desire. There was one thing burning in the heart of David. He tells us exactly what it is in verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord. And before I go on, I think it's, I'm going to do this because I think it's helpful. If you had one request, one desire that you could give to the Lord and know that he would answer it, what would it be? One desire. One thing I have desired of the Lord. And notice how David proves What his desire is. He says this desire is the thing that I am going to seek. One thing I've desired of the Lord. And this is what I am going to give my life to searching after. Here is the one thing. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Various ways of understanding this. Some see it very In the very physical sense, David is desiring to spend the days of his life in either the tabernacle or ultimately in more fulfillment later in the temple of God. I think that's a very base understanding and doesn't nearly go far enough. Because of the things he says that he equates with dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Notice in the second half of verse 4, he says to behold the beauty of the Lord. Secondly, to inquire in his temple. 
For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I don't think at all David is desiring some physical dwelling place. But in his spirit, in his spiritual life, in his understanding and by faith, his one desire in life has been boiled down to this, that he may dwell. And there the word is abide, that he may abide in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, because he knows there is real benefit to being in the house of the Lord. And let's understand the house of the Lord here as being the dwelling of the people of God. Not a physical structure, not a brick and mortar building. The house of the Lord here being the assembly of the people of God. The church. And let me just say this. The church is no parenthetical afterthought in the economy of God. The church is the body of those justified by faith. The principal concern of scripture from beginning to end. What will the Lord do amongst this redeemed group of people? How will he fulfill promise after promise? How will he keep his covenant with this group of people that he has called into himself and made provision for? This is what David is desiring to be a part of and to abide in all the days of his life because he knows here what we do well to know. It is within the confines of the house of God amongst his people that the Lord makes his beauty known most clearly. Not saying David's not saying the scriptures are not saying that you cannot have intimate fellowship with God on your own and have real beauty made known to you. But what he is saying And what we do very well to see is that David is saying it is in the temple of the Lord, in the house of the Lord, where the beauty of the Lord is most clearly seen. And where inquiry is best made. For in the time of trouble, notice this, it's within the house of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord. Where we find refuge. Notice three times over in verse 5. He says he shall. He shall hide me. He shall hide me. He shall set me high up on a rock. That's why I think David is referring to a a spiritual condition of, of intimate knowledge and relation with the Lord. To be set high up on a rock. Obviously David is not wanting to physically be set Upon the side of a mountain, David is wanting to be placed into the cleft of the rock, which is Jesus Christ. So that any storm of life may come. And yet he is to be found there in safety. And notice the outcome in verse 6. Notice the beautiful imagery that David gives. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around His head is lifted and displayed as being perfectly at rest. He says, therefore, what what does he do in response to this great deliverance that God has wrought for him? He does the same thing that we do. 
when we realize the great deliverance God has brought to us. He says, I will offer sacrifices of joy. Sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. The sacrifice of joy, the sacrifice of praise that we read in the book of Hebrews is fitting when we experience the great deliverance given to us of God. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. And this is the great expectation of God upon all believers. And I think we can press that even further when we read passages like Romans chapter 1 and And the great things, like Psalm 19, the great things the Lord is making known just by the existence of his glory, by creation, the things that have been made. It's as if the Lord is pressing upon every person, seek my face while I may be found. What was David's response? Your face, Lord, I will seek. Where is God in all of this? What a privilege it is to seek him out. He tells us he will be found. Verse 9. David says, do not hide your face far from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. For you have been my help. And I I thought this week about all the ways that David had known the help of God. And just just one I'll bring to your attention. You remember David as as a young boy coming up against Goliath? Did he know the help of the Lord then? Do you suppose that that is what was on David's mind? And he says, you have been my help. As he saw all the mighty men of Israel. Fall aside in great fear. And yet he. Just a small shepherd boy with his armed with a slingshot and a few rocks. Goes out to meet this great warrior. David has declared again, you have been my help. How often do you recount the ways that God has delivered you? And remember the great blessings that he has bestowed upon you. See how that undergirds and and fuels our faith for the future. When we remember the great deliverance God has wrought for us in the past. Because what it tells us is that he can do it again. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 10. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. The word forsake here is an interesting word. It speaks not just to the forsaking of abandonment, but it is also just the forsaking of death. And either way you make application of it, whether David here is 
realizing that there is a point in time when both his father and mother would forsake him through death, or whether he is referencing some unknown to us in Scripture forsaking of his father and mother. He makes this declaration, then the Lord will take care of me. The Lord is never going to forsake his own. By the words of Christ, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But notice David says, when the closest of my relationships, my own father and my own mother, whether in life or through death, when they forsake me, then I am confident that the Lord will take care of me. Temporal relationships like mother and father, siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents, all of these are are great. And when they are available to us, we need to glory and thank God for them. But suppose that they were all taken away immediately so that there was no contact. And aren't you thankful for the ways that we can have contact with people all over the world so easily? But even if that was taken away from us, then we are left to make the same declaration of David, the Lord will care for me. No one has left houses, lands, father, mother, sister, or brother for his sake and not gained a great abundance in recompense for it. Verse 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. This brings us to the third and last section of the psalm. We've seen David's all-encompassing confidence, his all-encompassing desire. Now let's see his all-encompassing courage. Because the first two are mute, if not actually put into Practice. Confidence and desire very often are intercepted by adversity and trouble. And your confidence and desire will be tried by the things the Lord puts you through. By the things the Lord allows to come into your path. Notice what David says, and I realize the first five words of verse 13 in the New King James as represented in whatever translation you have are in italics. And what that means is they weren't in the original, but they've been supplied by the translators to help the verse make sense. And all of them reflect in this way. I would have lost heart or I would have fainted. I would have thrown my hands up and given up. This would have been my lot unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Sometimes we use the phrase, I'm I'm losing it. I've lost it. I feel like I'm going to lose it. I think that well represents what the translators are trying to give us by inserting these first few words that even though weren't in the original, certainly implied. I would have lost heart 
I would have lost everything. I would have fainted. I would have turned back in unbelief unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Notice here the expectation of David is not just future. And every Christian has the confident, steadfast hope of better days ahead in glory. But David here is contemplating the here and now. He says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then the last verse. I was tempted to just pull this one verse out of this psalm and make this our focus in its entirety this morning. And I could say a whole lot, but just a few things about verse 14. Wait on the Lord. You may have a notation there that adds weight in faith. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I don't know if you know the name William Plummer or not. William Plummer has written, for what it's worth, what I consider to be a very helpful commentary on the Psalms. His comments on this last verse this week were really helpful to me. Both places, the beginning and the end of this verse... And it's as if David has now turned and is speaking to whomever is around him. But I still think there's an element that he's speaking to himself. And as Christians, we know that if we are to live rightly before God and not be overcome with fear, not become overcome with anxiety, we are going to have to speak to ourselves much more than we listen to ourselves, right? Perhaps that's what David is doing here. He's speaking to himself. And he's saying to himself, wait on the Lord. The word wait here obviously implies service, but it's a service in faith. And it's a service that is carried out in good courage. Do you see how fear of any kind in response to anything is totally antagonistic to everything that David has said. Do a word study on the word fear, Old and New Testaments, and see how often it comes up where the Lord says, do not fear. And it's as if the presence and the dwelling on fear is a slight on the relationship that God has with his people. How did, how did this song begin? The Lord is my light, salvation, and strength. Therefore, I will not fear. Whom shall I fear? What shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? This is who and what the Lord is for me. He's made himself known in these ways. He has given me a hope that is above all hopes. And I can remember things he's done for me in the past. Again, David with Goliath or David fighting the bear. David with the lion, whatever it may have been. Be of good courage. And what's what's the promise here? And he shall strengthen your heart. 
And so we've come full circle. David says, the Lord is my strength. And then he's showing us here at the end of the psalm, he is the strength of my heart and he is the expectation of strength in my heart. And then lastly, he says, wait on the Lord. Here, here are the words of William Plummer that I've written in the margin of my Bible that I thought on much this week. When he makes application of this phrase, wait, I say on the Lord. He says, this is how this applies to a Christian. He says, stand firm in your lot, even while you hope for better days. The lot there representative of whatever the Lord has given you, whatever the Lord has served you, stand firm in it, waiting on him. But even in that, you have the hope of better days to come. Stand firm and hope. The Lord is your light, your salvation, and your strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of it and how easily we can make application of it to our own hearts and relate with David. Lord, we confess that you are indeed our light. You have shined light into the darkness of our heart, revealed what is there, and made us run in faith to Christ for salvation. You are our deliverance. In every circumstance temporal, Lord, we can look and cry out to you and then know that you will either deliver us or leave us in it for our own good. Certainly you are our strength. Lord, help our desire to be that of David. To abide in the house of the Lord forever. All the days of our life. To behold there the beauty of the Lord. To inquire. Knowing that in the time of trouble. We will find rest. And deliverance even being hidden by you. Lord, help us to have the same response as David when we are told to seek your face, that we would seek it, that we would not turn away, that we would not turn away in disgust or unbelief or distraction, whatever it may be, but that we would turn to you. Lord, we're thankful to know that even if our closest relations were to forsake us, that you will care for us. And Lord, help us not to lose heart. Help us to trust and know that we will see the goodness of the Lord. Help us to wait upon you, to be of good courage, and to know the strengthening of heart as we wait upon the Lord. So Father, I pray that you would take this great psalm, give us a desire and a yearning to meditate more upon it. Lord, would you shed greater light upon it for each one of us and give us grace to live in that light. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.